So last week we were in verses one and two. Uh, we remember that we are elect exiles, as Peter calls us. Elect meaning that we are chosen. So if you're in Christ, you were chosen by God's foreknowledge. Uh, you're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ. So he's, he's making us more and more into the image of Christ. He's setting us aside for God. Um, and Peter, when he, he tells us that we are God's elect, this is meant to bring us great comfort. Great comfort in, in this world where we will deal with much hardship and, and trouble uh, and trials. And he calls us exiles, all Christians are to live as exiles. This world is not our home. We're, we're like foreigners in a foreign land. Our truth statement today, which uh, Matt Q actually wrote almost all of it. I added like two words. Um, it, it's been really fun. Matt Q, Matt Eldridge, Pastor Gary and I have been getting together and just working through this book and it's been great. So um, it says this, in all circumstances, we should praise God for his saving work in Christ. In all circumstances, we should praise God for his saving work in Christ. And in this passage, I'm going to point out at least three reasons that we have to praise God. The first is for the absolutely certain hope that we have in our salvation. The second is that God is using even our trials and hardships to grow and refine our faith, which saves us. And we, the third is that we have the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke about, the, the coming of the Messiah that they were looking towards. So Peter gives us these reasons to praise God. And remember, Peter is writing to Christian churches in Roman provinces. Um, I assume that there are some Jewish believers in these churches, um, but it's also clear from the way Peter's writing, there are Gentiles in these churches who have come to know and place their trust in Jesus as their savior. And these churches are already probably facing hardship, um, whether it's, it's for their faith, uh, maybe they're facing persecution, but certainly at a minimum, they're facing the hardship that just comes with life. Right? Life is hard. In a fallen world, uh, we face trials and difficulties. Now, within a few years of receiving this letter, these churches are actually going to face great persecution at the hands of Nero, like we talked about last week. If you were uh, tasked to be an encouragement to Christians in circumstances like those, and many Christians right now across the globe are facing persecution as they, they live as God's elect exile. So if you were tasked to encourage, say, an underground church in China, how would you start your letter to them? Maybe uh, you would quote Jesus in, in John 16, when he says that in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. That would certainly be a great start. You cannot go wrong with quoting Jesus, but let's look in verse three, how Peter starts. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed 
in the last time. So Peter starts us off on the right foot. What we need to do is praise God. And this is a book that has much to do with trials, much to do with suffering and hardship. But Peter doesn't start there acknowledging their difficulties, commiserating with them. He begins by praising God. For several years, I worked as a mental health counselor and uh, I, I spent many, many hours with people that were hurting for a variety of reasons, whether it was relational stuff, marital stuff, uh, loss in their life, depression, anxiety. Um, people would come in because things were not good. I, I never once had a client come in because life was going really, really well and they just wanted a little tune-up. Um, for all my clients, life was hard. It, it hurt and it hurt so much that, that they couldn't take it anymore. They, they didn't wanna live this way anymore. So most of the time, that first session was mainly them just pouring out a, a lot of pain. I, I really didn't even have to say many words. I, I would try to like get an empathetic statement in so they knew I was tracking with them. But Peter makes me look back and, and wonder, how often was I too slow in pointing my clients that knew Christ to what Peter points the readers to here? And I get it, a letter's different than, than when you're sitting with someone and, and we do need to demonstrate empathy and care. But I just think we're so often slow to remember and to point people to God and the hope that we have in Christ. We, we need to get our eyes off ourselves, off our circumstances, and onto God and what he has done in his glory. We need to praise God. So Peter tells us who this God is. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And this is key in our faith that this is who God is. The one true God is the Father of our Lord Jesus. This makes Christianity distinct from other religions. And Peter praises God and reminds us of who Yahweh is. And then he hits us with the hope that we have. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And this hope is sure. It's, it's certain. It's guaranteed. Now, I feel like I talk a lot about how biblical hope is so different than the way we use the word hope in daily life, right? Like today, I hope it doesn't get too hot before we're done here. I'm sure many of you hope that. Um, I hope that my truck can make it to like 250,000 miles. That would be great. Uh, I hope that the Blazers make the playoffs and knock off the Lakers in the first round. That would be phenomenal. All of these things technically could happen, um, but none of these hopes are sure. But what we have in Christ is totally different. When the Bible talks about the hope that we have, it's not like the hope that we speak about in day-to-day -day life. Look at, Peter, how, uh, look at how Peter describes it. He reminds us it's by God's mercy that he has caused us to be born again. Spiritual birth, like physical birth, it, 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 the, the one being born has nothing to do with it. They're, they're not the reason that it's happening, right? God has brought about this spiritual birth. He's given us life that without him giving it to us, we wouldn't have. So what we are born again to, Peter describes as living hope, right? This hope is different. It, it's a living hope. And of course it's a living hope because our Savior who died in our place for our sins, lives. We have a living hope 
because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why our hope is certain. Jesus' resurrection proves and reminds us that, that our future is guaranteed, our inheritance, our life in Christ and with Christ is guaranteed. He goes on in verse four to talk about this inheritance. He says, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is our inheritance. There was a couple uh, at a a church that I went to, my last church, um, and they got an inheritance. Her brother uh, had died, I think in his maybe 40s or 50s. He died pretty young and it came out of nowhere. She was the only a living relative left and he gave her everything. And it wasn't a giant inheritance, but it was enough for them to purchase a house and to wipe out all of their debt. It was enough um, uh, with them not having a mortgage. It, it was enough for them to start this nonprofit. They'd already started this food ministry out of their, I think their front porch and their garage. And, and because they were out of debt, because they didn't have a mortgage on their house, she was able to quit her job and they started this nonprofit. And, and while, while he was at work full time, then he'd come and uh, after hours volunteer and, and this ministry just grew and grew and grew. Eventually he had to quit his job so that he could work full time at the nonprofit. And they, they said without the inheritance from her brother, they never would have even thought to take a chance at, at this nonprofit. The inheritance changed absolutely everything for them. They weren't expecting it. Peter, he wants us to look to our inheritance that is coming as, as Christ followers and to expect it. He tells us it, it won't fade. It won't be contaminated, right? It's not going to decompose after thousands or even millions of years. It's being guarded by God's power, kept for every believer in Christ. And one day it will be revealed. Shouldn't our inheritance change absolutely everything for us? How often are we who have this great inheritance coming, we're consumed by chasing these little treasures that we're trying to build, our 401k, or maybe you're dreaming about that house on the lake or an early retirement or whatever. Jesus compares the treasures that we try and stockpile here to treasures in heaven. He says this in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moss nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What awaits God's people in the new heavens and the new earth, it blows away any little treasure that we can stockpile here, that we can accumulate in this life. But so often we're tricked as, into living as if this is it, right? Even in, even in what Jesus says there, you see the exile piece that we're not to live as, this, as if this is our home, as if this is where our inheritance is. One day we will get our inheritance, but that day isn't here yet, but it's coming and it's certain. And and Peter starts the churches, they're facing hardship, they're facing suffering with putting their eyes on God and what what he's done on who he is and what awaits every one of his people. 
I wonder how often if, if we had our eyes on those things, how often would panic just dissipate? Would sadness be comforted, our fears squelched? If we would just look to Christ and what he has accomplished and what he will bring to fruition, the living hope in Christ changes everything. And Peter praises God for it. Shouldn't we regularly praise God for these things exactly as Peter has? Verses six through nine, he brings us to the next thing we praise God for. We can praise God for what he's doing through our trials. And and that is so shocking to to hear and read, right? When James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, I don't know about you, but the first time or first several times I read that in my Bible, I'm like, what is this? But we know that God is refining and growing our faith and the outcome of our faith is salvation. He says this in verse six, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm sure you you probably caught the two words there, if necessary. We don't like it, but trials are often necessary. We actually need them because God uses trials to grow our faith, to refine us. Difficulty, hardship, suffering, these are actually great teachers and God uses them. This word for trials could be any number of hardships, certainly uh, persecution for, for trusting in Christ, but it's not limited to persecution. It, it could be relational hardship, disease, losing a job, losing a loved one. We, uh, we tend to pay attention when things get hard. Uh, lessons uh, seem to be learned a little bit faster and, and, and stick better. Um, when we go through hard times. Peter talks about gold, this precious metal, um, and and he tells us your your faith is so much more precious than this thing that will perish. But gold, before it's shaped into a a ring or an earring or or whatever, uh, it has to first be refined. It's got all these impurities, the the dross in it, and and you can't just like pluck out the impurities. That that gold nugget needs to be heated up with fire to the point that that it melts so the impurities can be separated. And so it is with our faith. We're being sanctified. The Spirit's making us more and more into the image of Christ. We're being set apart for God's purposes. And like gold, our faith needs this refining. And often it feels like we're being put through fire because we have these intermixed impurities, things that really have nothing to do with God. And that's what these various trials are like. Trials hurt. The process isn't pleasant, but the result is so good. And my guess is that the pandemic has uh, been at least a little fire, maybe a big fire for, for many of us to go through. And Um, And God has been working through these things. I don't know if you paid attention to it or not, but but God's working on our hearts, having his shelter in place. Uh, Many of you have lost jobs or lost income, not being able to see people you love or or being able to see family members and not be able to give them a hug. Um, Your plans have been canceled. It's, It's been a major disruption to normal life. And I'm not saying it's been the hardest thing ever, Um, But it's been a trial and it continues to be 
and we don't know how long this is going to last. Uh, how has God been refining you in this? I, I hope that you've been asking God, like, okay, Lord, grow me in this. Will, will you grow me? Will you teach me from this? Uh, our family, I think there's been like one really obvious way that God has used the uh, shelter in place for us, the whole pandemic. Um, we have been confronted with uh, ways that we do not love each other well. I'm talking every family member, like all of us have struggled in different ways. So there's been lots of discussions, uh, lots of confessing, apologizing, praying together that God would help us to love one another. Like God uh, being or like gold being melted, we've been forced to deal with, with sin issues uh, within our family. That honestly, if shelter in place didn't happen, we might've been able to kind of ignore them or, or push them to the side. But God in his grace has brought them to the forefront. And I, I wouldn't say being put to the fire was fun, but it has, it has refined our family a bit. And, and I, I trust that will continue to happen. Uh, the ancient uh, Roman world had an agricultural tool uh, called the trabellum. Uh, it was used to separate grain, the precious grain from the sheaves. So one person would, would toss the sheaves and the other person would drive this trabellum cart um, over the sheaves. And, and its job was, was to get the grain out of the husks so it could be used. So some of these carts had this, this long, heavy board that drug behind it. And, and on it, there were pieces of stone, uh, fragments of iron, and it would, as the cart went over it, it would force the grain out. Or, or some had, um, instead of wheels, they had rollers with the stone and the iron uh, attached to force the grain out. So this agricultural tool, the tribellum, it's where we get the word tribulation from. And I wonder if you ever feel like you're under the weight and the force of a tribellum with its, with its sharp bits working on you. Well, Peter reminds us that the farmer didn't intend to tear up the good grain, right? The goal was always to separate out this precious grain, and so it is with God, right? It might feel uh, like we're being torn to shreds as we suffer, as we face trials, but God is he's actually separating what is precious, what is of Him, and what is not. Uh, I stole this line from another pastor years ago, God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. Romans 8, 28 and 29, uh, I love this. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the, uh, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Right? God's using everything, really good things, days where the sun is shining, where you're on vacation, and the worst things in life too, the lowest of lows. God is using all those things for his elect people to make us more and more like Christ. So we can trust that God never wastes a diagnosis, a lost job. He doesn't waste relational strain or loss of a loved one, he will never waste the trials. He's using them. God is so good to use everything 
including and especially trials of many, many kinds to refine our faith. Verse eight says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter witnessed the life, the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And I'm sure many of us, maybe all of us at one time in our faith have wished, oh man, if I could just see Jesus, right? If I could just see him with my own eyes, if I could have been there, if I could have seen his body risen from the grave, how helpful that would be. But Peter says, even though you haven't seen him, even though you don't now see him, you believe in him, and you love him, and that's a miracle, right, that you love Jesus. Remember back in verse five, right, it's by God's great mercy that he's caused us to be born again, that you could love Jesus, who you've never seen with your eyes. Only being born again could bring this about. First John 5, 1 says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Peter tells us, and you've been filled with joy. And it's a joy, he says, that's, that's so great, it's inexpressible. Right? Words can't, can't do it justice. And it's interesting to me that back in verse six, just after talking about our inheritance, he, he, says, uh, he says in verse six, in this you rejoice. But now, after talking about this, this refining of our faith through trials, He writes that this joy is inexpressible. Well, why? Because this faith is your salvation, right? In one sense, once you believe in Christ, you're saved. And we've talked about this before, the the already, not yet thing that we see in scripture. In one sense, you, you believe once you're saved, but you're also being saved. And one day your salvation will come to fruition. So no wonder this leads us to joy that is inexpressible. So even in our trials, we can praise God because we know he is at work at us. Now, maybe we can't see what he's doing. Maybe we don't understand, but he's refining our faith, the faith that saves us. Our last section, verses 10 through 12, we praise God for doing exactly what he promised. He he sent Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus came to save. And we live on this side of the cross. So it's it's hard for us to appreciate the anticipation of God's people as they waited for God to send his anointed one, longing for the Messiah to one day come to make a way to be reconciled. Peter writes in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets of the Old Testament, right? The, the, the heroes of the Old Testament were searching. They're inquiring about the timing of the Messiah, the sufferings of Christ, the glory that was to come. They wanted to know. 
It'd been revealed to them that God was sending his anointed one. So they're searching, they're looking, they're they're trying to figure it out. I'm sure they're wondering, is this going to happen in my lifetime? Will I get to see the Messiah? God, are you doing this now? So they're looking and trying to figure this out. And then verse 12, it says it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves, but, but you, right? The people after Christ's death and resurrection, the prophets were pointing to the work that the Messiah would do, pointing to the people that would, the ones that would see the Christ, but even the ones after the Christ came, that everyone who would trust in Jesus' death and resurrection would be saved from sin. And then at the end, I'm sure you caught this, the statement that if you're not paying attention to what he's been saying at the end of verse 12, he gets to, he says, things that angels long to look to. What an amazing statement that these sinless beings long to look into this, that they so badly want to see God's work. They want to peek into God saving lost people through the blood of Christ. I'm sure you've been in a public place, it's crowded, and and then suddenly a a crowd is all going towards this one spot and you can't see what's going on, but your curiosity gets the best of you and and you're jockeying for position so you can get a glimpse. And and that's, that's the idea here, right? I imagine the angels like crowding around to get a view of what Christ is doing in saving people. Angels longing to see God take this rebellious heart of stone right? One that wants nothing to do with God. And then by his spirit, he he does this, this spiritual heart transplant, right? He takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that loves God, a heart that longs to be obedient to God. They want to see this miracle of God saving people, making people who are not his own suddenly his. If the angels are enamored with this, shouldn't we be? We should praise God for sending the Messiah to save. So is it normal for you throughout your day, throughout your week, to praise God for salvation in Christ? Last night, um, Lindsay and I were talking with some friends and and somehow it came up. They asked like, so how did we meet each other? We met back in fifth grade at church. I was a fifth grader. She was a sixth grader. Um, And and we were just good friends for years and years and years. And then obviously things changed. We got married. Um, And and later that night, um, I was just thinking about what it was like when when I wanted to first ask Lindsay out on a date. Um, like late in high school or, or late in high school throughout college, I tell people, oh man, I, I want to marry someone like Lindsay Langmaid. Langmaid was her, her maiden name. Um, it, it took me a while to figure out that I actually just wanted to marry Lindsay Langmaid. I didn't, I, I didn't think that that was even possible, right? Um, and, and, and last night it, it hit me again and, and this happens somewhat regularly. Like I'll be, just be driving in my car and out loud I'll just say, gosh, I can't believe I got to marry Lindsay Langmaid. And, and, and how much more so should we say that about Christ? Man, I, I can't believe that Jesus died to save me. I, I can't believe that he would shed his blood, that, that he, would, he would offer me his righteousness for my sin so that I could be reconciled with God, with Yahweh, the the creator of everything. I can't believe I get to know God and have life 
in him. And not just life someday in the future, but life now that lasts forever. I can't believe this. Do you find yourself just caught up in the mercy that God would save you by his blood? Is your life filled with praise for Christ? I find that God is really good at reminding me, like when I'm having a bad day, bad week, bad month, he's really good at, at, at helping me compare what's going on to salvation, right? To what I have in Christ. And suddenly my trials, they, they still hurt, but they're a whole lot less significant than they felt. Suddenly I remember that these difficulties really are temporary, right? In the passage, he says, for a little while. God's so good at reminding me of his great mercy, causing me to be born again. And he, he brings up within me this, this joy that, that wells up and a heart to praise him when just moments before I was down in the dumps about my circumstances. In all circumstances, we ought to praise God for his saving work in Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you, Lord. God, we, we want to love you more and more. Uh, while we don't like uh, like the, the tribulum, right? Being, being under this great pressure, this weight, and things being pressed out of us. God, we, we realize that even in that, you are so good to us. And, and really you're pouring out your mercy on us in that and making us more and more like Christ. So God, we, we praise you we praise you for who you are, for what you've done, and for what you will do, Lord, what you will bring to fruition. I pray that now, as we sing these final songs, that, that our hearts would be on you, that, that we would praise you. But even when we leave this place, Lord, I just pray that your praises would continuously be on our minds and our hearts and our tongues, Lord, that we, we, we could not wait to tell someone, anyone, uh, about how good you are, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.